Welcome to Export the Sound. I'm your host, Ben Ma. In today's episode, I invite Dr. Shane Shapiro of Sound Diplomacy to discuss how music policy can transform a place, how it can make a difference in a place's economy, tourism, and quality of life. We'll talk about Belfast and Anguilla as local examples, and a handful of national-level music policies as well. Enjoy. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Shane Shapiro to export the sound as my guest. Dr. Shapiro is the founder and chairman of Sound Diplomacy, an international research and strategy consultancy that focuses on building sustainable ecosystems for economic development focused on culture, entertainment, and particularly music. Dr. Shapiro is also the executive director for the nonprofit Center for Music Ecosystems, as well as the author of a forthcoming book, This Must Be the Place, How Music Can Make Your City Better. Dr. Shapiro, I've been looking forward to this one for a very long time, and it is such a wonderful honor to have you join me today. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. So just to start us off uh, with a brief introduction, could you briefly tell our listeners about yourself and your journey to starting Sound Diplomacy? Sure. So I'm Canadian originally, but I've been living in the UK for a long time. I've always worked in the music industry in one way or another, not by choice, but just because it happened. I started working in the music industry, really working in a record store, writing, working in a music venue when I was 15. So, you know, and, and throughout university and and really, you know, over the last, you know, however long it's been, I have just continued to work in music and and, you know, I've done a bunch of different things. I've worked at a record label. I have worked for a government agency. I've been a music journalist. And all of that kind of led me to setting up Sound Diplomacy 10 years ago. Because at the same time, I'm kind of a, a bit of a nerd about, you know, cities and places and and how they work. And, and I wanted to merge kind of music and, and place and cities together. Yeah, sound diplomacy is is really an interesting combination of all of those and truly seems to me pretty unique. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about sound diplomacy over the last 10 years and the work that the company is is focused on. Sure. I, I think we're less unique now than we were when we set up, when we started, which I guess is a good thing. But, you know, the, the company did not start working with cities. We started actually kind of more in traditional music industry, working to help artists export, artists and companies export their content. Because when I was working in government, I worked for the Canadian Independent Music Association as a European representative. So I essentially ran like the music export entity for Canada. A couple of years into Sound Diplomacy, we started to notice that there were some problems in some of the cities that we were working in. And, and a lot of those problems had nothing to do with music. They, you know, had to do with how cities are run, how cities function around licensing and land use planning and things like that. And, you know, that began the journey really to where we are now. And now we work with cities and governments and large organizations all over the world on really, you know, economic consulting related to music and, and entertainment and culture. So it's far more than music now, although that's kind of, you know, where we started and really what we try to is is we try to explain the value of music, whether it's cultural, economic, social, 
to a particular place, to a particular building, and explain how investing in music provides a net benefit. Whether it's investing your time or your money, it provides a net benefit to your community. And we show how and we forecast what that net benefit is going to be. So we can make, as we say, kind of deliberate and intentional decisions rather than emotional decisions. And often what happens in music in a community sometimes gets made you know, emotionally based on what someone likes or their history or their background. And, you know, we want music just to be treated, you know, with the same due diligence as we would treat anything else. Got it. The concept of Music Cities, when I first found out about it by finding you on the web and the work that Sound Diplomacy has done, was really interesting to me. It's something that I think I've been aware of for a long time. And subconsciously, I have a mental musical map of different cities I've lived in around the world. My home city of San Francisco has its own long history and and culture of, of music making. I lived in Beijing a couple of years ago, and the rock and roll underground scene there was so fascinating. And so I'd like to really focus this first part of the episode on music cities. And particularly, I'd like to talk about, if you think it's a good topic for discussion as a case study, Belfast and Northern Ireland. Of course. Yeah, I I think that the first thing is we have to kind of understand what the concept means, because it's a it's it's an overarching concept. You know, to some people, music cities is a, you know, is a vacation you can take to New Orleans, Memphis (laughs) and Nashville. And a lot of cities have thriving music scenes, but lack music policy. And a lot of places have music heritages and histories, but aren't doing a huge amount to support their local talent right now. And also there's often a focus on live music. And we do that purely because obviously live music is valuable, hugely valuable, but it's but we can see it. And we tend to focus on things that we can see. When, when we talk about music policy or music cities, It really is about incorporating music more into how a city operates, how a city thinks about urban planning, economic development, tourism, racial justice, climate, gender, everything. And that if you think about music's role in those things, then you can insert it in a, you know, in a more supportive way, which not only kind of centralizes and 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 better, you know, centers the industry in that city so it's treated as an industry but also it allows music to you know be far more incorporated into society and i think that the the thinking around music policy in cities has evolved a lot over the last few years where it's not just about growing the music industry but it's all it's about growing the music industry and supporting music's kind of wider holistic value in communities and and understanding how to do that, understanding what you have to measure, understanding what you have to know about a place, about how a place works and how it doesn't work and music's role in that. It's really interesting to hear this distinction between a city that might not have very much political and economic support for music, you know, drawn into its plans, and yet it has a very strong heritage and a strong scene And I'm sure there must be examples on the other side. And I was wondering if you think that having a a, a musical heritage and a strong music scene is a necessary prerequisite for having a music policy in that city to succeed, or if actually 
having a music policy can help to grow a music scene where perhaps it wasn't so strong before? It's not a prerequisite, you know, where there, where there's people, there's music, right? Yeah. So, you know, music's our universal language. As we say, we all speak it. So you don't need to have something happen in the past there for it to, for, for a music policy to have impact in the future or in the present. Uh-huh. Obviously it's beneficial so, you know, we are all we are all narrative human beings. We all love stories. So being able to tell the story of a place through recognizable music is is a benefit. But any place of any size can leverage music. It would just leverage music in a different way, you know. And, you know, we see music as as a tool to support healthy aging and well-being. Every city has people getting old in it. You know, music is a, you know, a a really powerful educational tool. I always say that, you know, hip hop is one of the greatest literacy tools we have. And every city, every place has schools and and people who are being kids who are being educated in them. And so, you know, it's it's not a prerequisite at all. It's 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 just having a a more nuanced understanding of, of what music's role is in the community and and having a data and evidence based approach to it, right? To again, not thinking strategically, not thinking emotionally. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I think that's a great transition point to dive into the specific example of Belfast. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where Belfast was along this spectrum before sound diplomacy came in and what y'all did to help and maybe what what have been the results of, of the project that sound diplomacy has undertaken with, was it directly with Belfast's city government or uh, was there another entity that y'all worked with? It was directly with Belfast, with the city. We, we had local partners as well. So Belfast is an amazing place. It's got an amazing musical heritage and history and cultural heritage and history you know it's it historically has had its challenges it's you know it still is a troubled place in regards to you know some of the obviously what happened in northern ireland over the last 30 or 40 years but the the music and cultural heritage there is incredible and long precedes us obviously that's belfast you know, we don't really have an opinion. That's the thing I have to state. You know, we're just data gatherers and researchers. And so what we did in Belfast was we just, you know, put an evidence-based approach towards what was already happening there. And through that, you know, we've identified, we, working with our local partners and many stakeholders, identified a, a number of gaps at the not just the city could address, but, you know, its partners across some of the, you know, different areas that I've said. One of them was, you know, the city really wanted to be recognized as a city of music. So an application was put into UNESCO and, and thankfully they, UNESCO awarded Belfast the city of music. And we worked on that with, with an amazing a company called Fourth Pillar that is run by an amazing woman from Northern Ireland and the city themselves. The city has invested more in music. They're really thinking about their regeneration and redevelopment strategy to incorporate. This is more just more than music, but 
incorporate music and culture more into the regeneration of buildings and how the city is planned. And, you know, and now they have a suite of data and evidence to make decisions. You know, we, we need, we need to focus on evidence-based policymaking, right. Rather than policy-based evidence-making. Mm-hmm. And now Belfast, Belfast has that. And, uh, and, you know, they've kind of taken our work and they're running with it right now. We, I think we finished working with them about a year ago. That sounds amazing. And I saw that recently the city approved another £100,000 or so of music yeah. investment for the city. And I'm sure that a lot of the things that they're, they're, they're spending that money on were informed by the data that y'all gathered. So, yeah, we, yeah. we don't, obviously, if it's, you know, again, they, there's some amazing organizations like in Belfast that long predate us, but we demonstrated the, you know, an economic argument to invest more. So, you know, there, some of the money's going to support music venues. Some of it is to support digital marketing and education. Some of it's going to support music mentoring and, you know, and it all, you know, we had to take our strategy to city council, to the city council to adopt it. And they did. So, you know, when, and now that they're a city of music, you know, not, not all cities of music do stuff with the title, but, um, but those that do, do some incredible work. And, and I'm pretty excited with, with what Belfast is doing and, and, and the partners that they brought in to work, including like the Music Venue Trust and an organization called Output and, and others. What are the kinds of data that has been most helpful that you've collected for Belfast? The economic data? Yeah. So the economic analysis that we collected, we, we, we determined, we identified the total value of music, you know, how much different sectors of music were worth in the city and the mapping. So we mapped Belfast's music infrastructure literally on a map. Mm. I believe it is online and available. And and that has helped kind of, you know, again, show rather than tell how robust the music economy is in the city. Gotcha. What are some of the benefits that not just Belfast, but other cities, I'm sure, that, that what they can expect to benefit from when they do investment in music in terms of economics first, but also human well-being, livability? What are the main benefits that, that you see coming out of investing in music economy and ecosystems jobs first and foremost you know i think that uh um belfast can attract and retain talent and that it shows that it cares about music it means that those who are pursuing a career in music and the creative economy i think they'll be given a, a good argument as to why they could stay in belfast and pursue that career rather than come to london that takes time though but I believe that there will be more jobs, obviously tourism and city branding, a city that shows that it cares and puts its money and its time where its mouth is, usually demonstrates why it's a place worth visiting and worth investing in. And, you know, bring and and like anything, you know, when you demonstrate that you care about a sector, the sector will react positively. So there's been certainly additional work and additional networking being done across the music economy. And there's been a lot more interest from property developers and investors in mixed use, you know, cultural led regeneration in Belfast. And, you know, the city has, the city is on the up and up, we feel. But 
you know, the, the data and the recommendations are what the city or the community does with it as much as what we can do with it, with them. And Belfast has, has shown the political will and the, to, you know, to take the recommendations and run with them. I would love to examine further the sub-benefit you mentioned of tourism, especially related to this podcast, it being moving music across borders. Is there a difference between making a music city and maybe making music venues or policies in that city for the benefit of local people versus for the purpose of building a city brand and drawing tourists? Yes and no. Like there's infrastructural differences. So, you know, like what what is required for a tourist or what is required for a local resident are different, but you know, it uh, it's 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 more or less the same stuff. It's just directed at different constituencies or different objectives. So, both need spaces and places to do stuff in, you know, business-friendly environments. They need communication strategies, you know, places to congregate and so on. So tourism is hugely important. And, you know, we'd say that, you know, any music strategy that is implemented locally will positively impact tourism. Because, again, a city that demonstrates that it cares about music often attracts people who care about music. That makes a lot of sense to me, because I think when people come in and experience music as a tourist, honestly, what you seem to be looking for the most is that local, very authentic kind of flavor. Like if I was an American coming in to see music in Northern Ireland, I would frankly be a little disappointed if it was like American style pop. But yeah, I I think that it totally makes sense to me that you can have two birds with one stone, both benefiting the local people, the local residents, as well as improving brand awareness for tourism purposes. Yeah, music is a great way to, you know, to provide a human-based stories, you know, people as well. Like, you know, we, we all need our eyes opened. We all need to assume less. We all need to, you know, you know, you know, just treat people as and where they are. Music is a terrific tool to do that. For the sake of a comparative example, I would love to talk about the example of Sound Diplomacy's work with Anguilla a British overseas territory in the Eastern Caribbean, and developing Anguilla's cultural tourism, which, if I understand correctly, is more than just music, but including music. In that project, how, how are the requirements different? Obviously, Belfast and Anguilla being wildly different places. W- what was most different, and what kind of things were most similar in those two projects? Yeah. Okay. Anguilla is a very small place. Only 14,000 people, I think, live there. The government there is very progressive and forward thinking, very supportive of arts and culture, have terrific ministerial support. And really, it was the first research. So we just did a piece of research there just to try to map the creative and cultural economy because that had never been done before, just to kind of put a baseline together. We're actually trying to what they need is a is a venue. What they need is a you know a hub, because there is no theater, theater, live performance, creation, creative venue in the country. So, next steps there is trying to, and I know that the the government is working on this, is 
is to try to use this data to demonstrate the economic and social value of creating a facility like that. It sounds like in the case of Anguilla, it's just a much earlier stage of development than Belfast. And so the projects are probably completely different than a... Well, yes and no. They come from the same data and evidence-based approach, mm. right? Gotcha, um, gotcha. Like, you said yes and no, but the the objectives are wildly different. Yeah, Anguilla is a tiny little, wonderful, tiny little place. You know, Belfast is a, is, you know, but both involve tourism. Anguilla's main, one of main, one of their main industries is tourism and and workforce development. That makes sense. I can see, yeah, I can see that that the the aims and it sounds like the evidence based approach are are very similar, even if the details of of what needs to be built at this this current stage are are different. I'd I'd like to shift now into expanding our scope a little bit to national music strategies with the latter half of the episode and specifically national music policy making which I, I know you've written a few articles about. You've mentioned Thailand, Zimbabwe, Belize as a few nations that are just starting up new national music strategies. Do you think that these new music strategies will have any impact in the next few years? Or do these changes need to be sustained over a longer period of time or use more investment in order to reap the benefits? Well, I, I do believe that they all will have will be a benefit to each of the places you know every 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 place has to establish a baseline first off right and i think that's what these projects are about like you know belize it really doesn't have much of a music industry a commercial main modern music industry but they've got tons of talent there are people working in the music industry there there's some incredible talent there there's an entire genre of music that is like traditionally Belizean called Punta Rock, which, you know, which I would recommend everyone listen to. It's great. But there is no economic baseline. You know, Zimbabwe is similar. Um, that was a project that UNESCO led on and, and Thailand has more wider creative economy. But there are you know, that the Philippines are doing one around music, too. I think you have to start somewhere. And we think that these all of these projects are incredibly, you know, beneficial to the countries because they provide that baseline to then develop a, a more nuanced, more, you know, evidence-based discussion around what the role of music is in the development and economies in these countries. You know, I can't speak for any of them because I don't live there, but I do believe that music you know, by doing this, there's a terrific opportunity. And there are other countries as well that are looking at this as well right now. Yeah, there's a, a few countries that come to mind as examples of, of successes in developing a national music strategy, Canada being one, South Korea, another that's just so globally visible with K-pop. What about these approaches, if you agree that they're successful approaches, is most interesting and, and most modelable or, or transferable to other nations as they develop their burgeoning music strategies? You know, I think that the, the, the thing that's most transferable or the thing that's most modelable, for lack of a better word, 
is focus on education. So, you know, focus on education, focus on skills. The Nordic countries, especially Sweden, for example, have Denmark, have very, very robust music education frameworks, both primary school, but also vocational, after school programs, things like that. So I think that that can happen anywhere. Like, you know, music education doesn't have a national, it has nothing to do with a nation, right? And people were being educated on music long before nations existed. So, you know, Canada has a, a pretty extensive music education framework. It's not perfect, but it is, it's pretty active. And there's an industry development framework there too. South Korea is all about education. You know, the whole country, you know, K-pop was a, in essence, you know, a government initiative that came out of a need to diversify the economy. And education is at the heart of that. So I would say that not just learning how to play music, but understanding how the business works, understanding, you know, the different nuances of the wider music economy. So I mean education in the widest sense of the word. Yeah, I think the example of South Korea and the Hallyu wave is such a fascinating one. And hopefully in a future episode, I can dive into that specifically. But I, I definitely agree more than just producing talented musicians through education. It's also creating an effective industry around those musicians that can allow them to have their voices amplified. And uh, certainly there's other parts of beyond just making a, 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 an economic climate that's friendly to these businesses, but also it seems like education towards music industry is also important. Well, yeah, music is not an industry in a lot of places. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just not seen as one. It is, but it's not seen as one. When it's not seen as one locally, then often talent development gets outsourced, you know, and to multinationals. And in some ways, that's okay. But in other ways, it's, it's you know, we, we need to explain why investing in music is investing in communities. And these types of studies and these policies and these, these are statements of intent, right? So they're hugely important. Yeah, that's actually a, a really poignant point that music isn't seen as an industry in a lot of places. I've never actually thought of that before. But y'all's work is, no. is going a long way. It ain't. No, it, it's unfortunate. But, you know, we all live in our own music industries, right? You have yours. I have mine. The music industry is a place that when you're working in it, you think that it is universal, but it's not. And, and, and there are lots of frameworks around the world that could benefit from music, but don't have them embedded in. Like development financing, for example, how we literally invest in, you know, reconstruction. So... You know, it's music is a nice to have, not a need to have. And that's what we need to change. Yeah. Speaking of one other such framework, one of your most interesting articles that I took a look at suggested that national sports strategies. So, for example, the UK has a national sports strategy involving the construction of pitches like so football pitches, soccer pitches, as well as, you know, education and availability of different athletics as kids are growing up, how these national sports strategies could be a model for national music strategies. And I'd love to hear more on that perspective, what, what you think is really the, that possibly we could learn from different 
country national sports strategies? Yeah, you know, I'll be honest, I took that from one of my colleagues, Jet, at Sound Diplomacy, who is a, a sport fanatic. I like sports too. But, you know, I, I think that we invest so much in sports. It's amazing that you invest in a facility like that is open like 15 days a year that costs hundreds of millions of dollars, <laughs> right? It's quite something. Yeah. Uh, and and yet it still brings economic benefit. I think that there is a there's an assumption or an agreed assumption that sports is worth investing in. And I don't think we have that for music. So I think that that is where this comes from, is that if we thought about music in a similar way to thinking about sports, then, you know, then we would then we would embed it more. You know, we build it into our economic development strategies rather than have to bolt it on. Yeah, yeah. As we bring this interview towards a close, there's one thing I've been asking a lot of my guests to share, which is favorite tracks or artists. And I know our particular interview actually has not been particularly focused on specific songs or artists, but perhaps that makes it even more interesting through through all your varied work around the world with different countries and cities. Is there anyone that you think people should be listening to right now that perhaps is not getting the attention that they deserve? There, there's tons. You know, I, I still adore music every day. I listen to music every day, probably 10 hours a day. A couple that I've been listening to the last couple of days, an amazing Canadian hip-hop collective called Super Duty Tough Work, which I'd fully recommend for people who like kind of jazzy, disposable heroes of hypocrisy style, tribe style hip hop. I think they're really exciting. There's a, a new yacht rock band that I quite like called Young Gun Silver Fox from, I think they're from the UK. Um, it's a great name for a band too. Once you listen to their music. And so there's, there's two and there, there's this kind of, I'd say kind of, you know, Afro conscious, black powery death metal band called Zulu who I'm a big fan of, kind of scream, very noisy, but very interesting. So there are three right there. Awesome. That sounds like three amazing picks for the next 24 hours of my playlist. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for coming on. And I really enjoyed our conversation, learned a lot. I hope the listeners will too. No, thanks. And for anyone, you know, if you visit my website, just my name.com, Shane Shapiro, you could pre-order my book, which is all about this. So if you're interested in this kind of stuff, then, you know, I've written everything I know into a book. So please check it out. Oh, yeah. And that book is coming out in September, right? September 12th, worldwide, yes. The publisher is called Repeater Books, and it's di distributed worldwide by uh, Random House. All right. I marked it on my calendar, counting down the days. Yep. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Export the Sound.